I'm Georgie Barrett. And I'm Alex Goldstein. And welcome to the Sleep Life podcast, the show from Simba designed to help you unlock your sleeping potential. Whether you have trouble getting your head down or you're interested in boosting your performance, this podcast is all about realising that sleep is the very foundation of everything you do whilst you're awake. Now, in each episode, we're taking a look at a different area of our lives where sleep can really affect us. So, Alex, what are we honing in on today? So today we're going to look at the relationship between sleep and food or sleep and nutrition. So we've all heard things about like having weird nightmares after eating cheese or not being able to get to sleep after drinking too much coffee. But there's lots of evidence to suggest that sleep and food have a far more complex relationship. So in this episode, we want to get into some of the science and tease out some useful information that we can take into our day-to-day lives, which brings us very nicely onto introducing today's guest. Yes, here with us is the wonderful and beautiful Dr. Zara Kayat, a practising NHS GP, who you may also know from the television shows such as ITV Good Morning. Hello, Zara. Hello. First of all, I've got to ask you, how did you sleep last night? Oh God, I actually slept really badly last night, oh, but no. yesterday was an exception. The, the husband came home late, drunk. <laughs> I found him on the floor. So it's not it's not representative of how well I usually sleep. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you're a good sleeper generally? Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty good. How did you sleep, Alex? Uh, actually, surprisingly well, given that we had some office drinks last night. But I think I was, I was quite sort of restrained uh, and got back at a reasonable time. So I wasn't too far out of work with my usual routine. So not too bad. Um, Sorry, I love following you on Instagram because you're really good at like putting photos, firstly of your lovely self up, but then also you have like these brilliant medical captions. My favourite being recently Super Gonorrhea 101. <laughs> I think you're the only person who puts that up on Instagram. And then puts my face yes, next exactly, to it. Yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I like the catchy headlines. I do. <laughs> so you speak a lot about nutrition and exercise and reproductive health. Are those the areas that you're really interested in when it comes to being a doctor and speaking to your patient? Absolutely. I think lifestyle medicine is so important. So that takes on board things like nutrition and exercise. But I've got a little extra love for, for a bit of sexual health too. <laughs> <laughs> Mix it all together. Um, and when it when it comes to sleep, like how, how big a factor does it play when it comes to people coming into your clinic? Oh, well, we know that sleep is massively entwined with our our mental health, our physical health, you know, what we're eating, what we're doing. So it plays such a big part in my normal consultation. Would you ever give a prescription of sleep to somebody like is that is that something that you would do? Well, I, I think most people would want a prescription for some uh, hypnotic medications. But yes, <laughs> I, I generally try and encourage sleep. It's one of those things that people want a quick fix. There isn't always one. Yeah. So I want to talk about the neuroscience of nutrition today and sort of dig in a little bit more about what we should be eating, what foods we should be avoiding, asking why. So first of all, let's go with the most obvious one, caffeine. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can have a cup of coffee around 4pm and it can still keep you up at night. What is going on there when it comes to the brain and interacting with caffeine? Well, caffeine works by blocking the production of a chemical called adenosine in our brain. And it's that chemical that tells us to sleep. And so if it's blocking it, our bodies are just thinking, oh, okay, we can't go to sleep. But it's also working by increasing our adrenaline. So it's got kind of a multifaceted way of working. But it does have a half-life of around six hours. So people that are having it with their lunch, for example, may it may still be in their system by the time they're trying to go to sleep. And that's why it affects us. I get such bad fizzy brains off caffeine. I'm really sensitive to mm-hmm. it. Is there a time that people shouldn't be having a coffee? Like, is there a sort of cut-off point within the day? 
Well, because it takes around six hours, we would suggest avoid taking any caffeine in prior to, well, after, pardon me, six hours of going to sleep. No, prior. Getting prior than after. Six hours before before going to bed. We know that if you have it after that time, you can have a one hour reduction in your sleep. So studies have shown it's that detrimental to your sleep. Well, that's really significant. Because do you, do you find that people in general fall within that sort of seven to nine hours sleep pattern or try to? Yeah, most people will will try to get at least seven hours. And that's what I always try and encourage because less than seven hours we know can lead to detrimental health like cardiovascular problems, you know, diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and even early death. So it's, it's important that we try and get those seven hours, but actually getting more than nine hours is detrimental too. Okay, you can, you can oversleep as well. Absolutely. So it's that magic seven to nine. So when some people have a coffee at the end of the meal and it doesn't affect their sleep pattern, why is that when if I had a coffee at the end of the meal, I would be wired for another sort of four hours lying in bed being like, please, can I drift off? Sadly, there is a bit of a genetic aspect to it. So nothing you can do. We do know that some people are just more sensitive to it than others. And and if you are that person, it is just a matter of trying to avoid it. I do try. I am quite good. I am quite good. I guess there are some foods that can sort of sneak up as well. I mean, chocolate, that's being one that contains caffeine. Um, does tea contain as much caffeine as coffee? Is that right? Well, uh, wait for wait, it, it could do. But actually, if you look at a a cup of coffee versus a cup of tea you've got about 20 milligrams in a cup of tea but around 60 in a cup of coffee so you know we're we're going three times the amount of caffeine by having a cup of coffee but it does mean that if you're having you know eight cups of tea a day thinking that that's normal you are really racking up those those caffeine numbers and so so how how many how many cups of coffee do you have a day Alex? I don't really drink coffee very much um and so when I do I do yeah I go a bit hyperactive when I have coffee but I drink far too much tea so I've had to kind of make a conscious decision to switch to either decaf or something like chamomile in the afternoon so I get the kind of hot drink feeling but without that kind of burst of caffeine. Green tea is a sneaky one though because green tea does also contain caffeine even though it sort of feels like you're having a herbal tea. Oh completely people think they're being really healthy but unfortunately it does still have quite a lot of caffeine in there. Ideally, we don't want to be having much more than 130 milligrams of caffeine a day if you can avoid it. So that's about two cups. I mean, what we've always kind of read about and recommended is sort of trying to switch to non-caf after sort of 2pm. If I'm ever drinking too much coffee, I always remember that spider experiment. Do you remember? That yes. it took place back in the sort of 1950s where they gave spiders caffeine and they sort of saw the impact it had on their webs. Have you, have you was, seen that one? I've seen the one where they gave them lots of different hallucinogenics yes. as well. That's yes. part of it, yeah. Got it. Same study. So a guy <laughs> called um, Peter Witt, uh, so a zoologist friend of his, decided that he wanted spiders to uh, spin their webs at different times of day because they were spinning them overnight and asked Peter Weiss if he could change the time that spiders were were spinning their webs. So he gave them various psychoactive drugs, including caffeine. Uh, Poor spiders. And... <laughs> Never asked for this. Or lucky. <laughs> when you look at the pictures, it's quite striking because you get things like amphetamines that look sort of more orderly webs than the caffeine. But actually... The spiders still span the webs at the same time. So they were just far more erratic web spinners. And it doesn't really tell us anything about humans. And so how even though the webs it. went a little awry, yeah. it doesn't mean that it does the same to our brains. No, we just know that it does something to our brains. It's just what it does in humans is probably a bit different from spiders. Another obvious no-no has to be alcohol. 
which weirdly makes you feel like you go to sleep quicker, sort of conks you out a bit, but it does interrupt your sleep pattern. Yeah, absolutely. So people always take it as a bit of a nightcap to try and get them to sleep. And I have so many patients saying, yeah, I, I usually just have like a little brandy before bed. It gets me off to sleep. I'm like, no, this is why you're not sleeping through the night. It does disrupt your sleep pattern, not only because of elements of dehydration, but also it, it interrupts your REM sleep. So your, your, your good restorative part of your sleep. So ideally, again, you should be avoiding that later on at, at night. Now, REM sleep is when you're predominantly doing your dreaming. Is that right, Alex? Yes. So, I mean, during the night, you'll have various phases of sleep. I think it's five cycles, usually, if you've completed a, a sort of average night's sleep. And the early ones will be heavier in, in deep sleep. And then the later ones slightly wait in favour of REM sleep. And that's the one where you're more likely to remember dreams that come out of it and also the one where your body will kind of be paralysed so that you can't act out your dreams. Uh, do certain types of foods sort of trigger strange sleep behaviours? Like my, my husband, for example, sometimes suffers from sleep paralysis, which can be quite scary in that moment. Would something like alcohol or caffeine affect that? I suspect that for some people, actually, alcohol will be a trigger for those kind of events. I mean, there are certain foods like, you know, cheese containing foods that we, we always talk about causing, you know, nightmares and, and strange sleep patterns. So it's possible, it's common that you can have your your sleep interrupted by various foods and chemicals. So just to go back on sleep paralysis, that's when your brain's awake, but you can't actually move. Is that right? Yeah, you haven't quite, your body hasn't quite caught up with the fact that you've woken up. So um, it can be quite, it's actually much more scary to experience, but actually slightly scary to watch because you can watch people trying to break out of this kind of paralysis and kind of grunting and groaning. So I've taken to just kind of elbowing lightly. <laughs> good good, As a, good in, technique. In a like, medical technique, yeah. <laughs> very loving. <laughs> and um, even if you have a very small amount of alcohol, this can still impact your sleep cycles? I mean, I suppose if you ask any medical professional, Sarah, you'll be able to answer this. You, the, the advice would be don't have any alcohol if you can avoid it. But so I suppose realistically, is there an amount that you could probably get away with or is it the time of day or depend on the person? Well, we always say that it's a matter of keeping it to the 14 units per week. So ultimately, that's a drink a day. Um, I, I was suspect... going to say, not all at once. <laughs> <laughs> Love a good binge. Um, no, please, please not all at once. Um, so yeah, just the one a day. I suspect if you have it earlier on the, in the day, you're less likely to then suffer the effects of it during the night. I mean, one of my techniques, I always try and down some water if I've been drinking before I go to sleep. Would that help improve my sleep quality at all? Or is it just going to make me want to go for a wee in the night? Um, it's it a bit of a double-edged sword because... The alcohol is likely to make you feel dehydrated, so taking in that extra glass is going to be really good for you. But it's also a diuretic, and so that means that it makes you want to pee more. And if you're drinking more water and you've got the diuretic on board, you're just going to be going like a racehorse. Yeah. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Anything else we should be avoiding food-wise um, that you've come across, Sarah? It's worth thinking about acid reflux because that is a common cause for people to have disrupted sleep patterns that's when the acid's coming back up the throat and it's it's more common when you're lying down and there are certain foods that will trigger that kind of thing off so both alcohol and caffeine are in that list but there's also kind of spicy foods and fatty heavier foods that will do it 
I definitely notice if I have like a really big meal and go to sleep, I don't sleep as well. But I, I, I've never, I haven't quite sort of pinpointed which part of that meal is disrupting my sleep pattern. Alex, are there any sort of in-depth studies that have been done on, on foods that we should be avoiding? So, I mean, obviously, the relationship between food and sleep has been dug into a bit and sometimes gets kind of separated out into particular elements like carbs or protein and things like that. There was one particularly interesting paper we were looking at called Effects of Diet on Sleep Quality, and it's by Marie-Pierre Sanange and Anja Mikic and Cara Pietralunga. That was published in 2016 by the American Society for Nutrition. It's a review, so it brings together a number of different studies, and it's really crucial to point out that correlation does not equal causation. So the studies didn't necessarily draw a conclusion whether sleep was influencing diet or diet was influencing sleep. So we should put that out there and look at it holistically. There was one study in that which looked at a small group of female Japanese workers looking at their sort of dietary patterns and how it affected their sleep. So those who seem to show a high intake of confectionery and noodles, which sounds awesome, by the way, uh, correlated, unfortunately, with poorer sleep quality. And those who ate a lot of fish and vegetables tended to sleep better. So the interesting conclusions drawn out of that was that it, it... Yes, carb intake may be a factor, but it could possibly be the quality or type of carb as opposed to just carbohydrates in general. Sarah, just a question on these sleep studies that we do mention quite a lot throughout this series. Um, From like a clinical perspective, how do people actually measure people's sleep quality? Are there different ways of doing it? Do you always have to be in a lab? So they have lots of different threshold so they'll look at the time it takes to fall asleep they'll look at the actual quality of sleep and they can do lots of kind of EEG so brain studies to look into whether they're in REM sleep or or non-REM sleep so there are lots of different ways but often the the basic ones will just use a you know a a watch type device the more in-depth ones will be using those neurological EEGs and I guess it's worth saying that most of these studies truly have been done on animals rather than humans anyway. So it's not always able to be replicated in in human studies. I noticed that you're wearing a fitness tracker. Do you track your sleep? I do. Do you? I do. Um, I check it every day. Oh no, you're addicted to it. (laughs) I'm a geek. And what conclusions do you you take from it? I sleep between seven and eight hours every night. So I I'm, I'm I can tell this good. is a girl that does look at her sleep data. She is like she's ready to to give the start. I am, and then um, I think my awake cycle is slightly longer than it should be. So I'm awake for a little bit, a little bit longer than ideal, but I have a fairly good amount of deep and REM sleep. If you wake up in the morning and look at your data and think, oh gosh, I've had a really bad night's sleep. I mean, does that just not just make you feel a bit bad throughout the day, or you know, do you use that information to try and change anything? Occasionally, I will think I've slept incredibly and then look at it and say, what? (laughs) Apparently, this is the worst night I've had in forever. But as long as I feel good, generally, it doesn't make much of a difference to me. I just... I just like to know numbers and stats. I'm just a It's the doctor in you. It's the doctor in you. Um, let's talk sleep-friendly foods. Alex, you mentioned that carbs in that sort of study weren't maybe people's best friend when it comes to sleeping. Are there any foods that are really good? So one of the aspects that's studied a lot with sleep and diet is protein. And the reason for that is because of an amino acid called tryptophan. So I'm sure Sarah can go into a lot more detail about how this works, but amino acids, protein building blocks, tryptophan turns into something called, is it 5-hydroxytryptophan? Is that right? Absolutely. And then that goes into the sort of pathway towards melatonin. So how does that work? 
So melatonin works by regulating our dark light cycle. So it essentially regulates our circadian rhythm. So when it's dark outside, the melatonin goes up. When it's light, it goes down. And that's how our body adjusts itself in terms of sleep. Um, often um, you hear about you taking melatonin supplements for when you have jet lag. Did those actually work? There is a lot of evidence for melatonin supplementation, absolutely. And we know that a lot of the foods that are high in melatonin also help with sleep. So really, I think melatonin is the key here. Okay, so let's talk about melatonin in terms of food. Alex, what foods contain a lot of melatonin or contain this amino acid? So for for tryptophan-containing foods, you get that a lot in actually the typical sources of protein. So you get dairy foods. That's why some people, I think, swear by warm milk before bed. Uh, You get some in cheese. You get some in poultry. So there were a few kind of new studies and things like that around Thanksgiving and Christmas and talking about Christmas dinner making you sleepy because of the amount of tryptophan in the turkey, although I strongly suspect it's because of the amount that people are eating and potentially the alcohol content. Yes, indeed. indeed. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, typically protein sources. If you're sort of on a restricted diet or if protein is tricky for you, I mean, are we getting enough protein in general? Are we getting too much? Sort of how do we balance that? Most people don't ever feel like they're getting enough protein. You see people getting loads of protein shakes and things like that. But actually, it's quite easy to get enough protein from our diet. You know, one chicken breast would be enough to equate to a whole protein shake or even a glass of milk would be enough to equate to that protein shake. So Often we're, we're, we're overdoing it if, if you're starting to go down the shake route. Okay. So if we overdo it, does that, does that affect sleep as well? Is there such a thing as too much? <laughs> there is such a thing as too much protein in terms of your kidney function and, and, and other aspects, but I don't believe it's been studied in terms of sleep. Okay. Um, so when it comes to sort of looking at a more restricted diet, if people are on a plant-based diet, things like that, does that make any difference when it comes to sleep? Because I guess you are missing out some of those proteins and should maybe you take supplements? So in terms of the proteins, uh, yes, if you're not able to get those proteins from other sources, then you may need to consider supplementation. But actually, it's also about your vitamins and minerals, because we know that in some cases with, with vegans, they may be low in vitamin B. That comes from a lot of meats, but it also does come in green leafy vegetables. So they may be OK as long as they're, they're really kind of looking into their diet appropriately. But we know that B6 is a cofactor. So it's one of the requirements into making serotonin, which then inversely, well, indirectly produces the melatonin. So if you're low in B6, you may not be forming as much melatonin as possible. So you may need to take supplementations. And on melatonin, so I understand that it has this impact on helping you fall asleep. Does it have any impact on quality of sleep or is it literally just getting you into the sleep state in the first place? I do believe that it's a matter of quality and quantity of sleep. So things like chamomile tea, that's something that you often hear about is helping you get to sleep. Is there any sort of fact behind that or is it just more of a routine that people like to do? There have been studies showing that chamomile tea does affect sleep positively It's difficult to know whether it's an element of a placebo, whether it's actually just that it's a nice warming 
drink just before bed. But there are studies to show that it, it has some effect. And, and Alex, like sort of the sleep routine and the placebo effect is actually quite important when it comes to heading yeah. to bed. So one of the things that seems to come up again and again with, with quality sleep is that a routine, going to sleep at roughly the same time every night, getting up at roughly the same time every day, not attempting to kind of catch up on sleep or hoard sleep in different ways, is actually quite important. So if you regulate your eating habits or have a lovely kind of pre-bed routine that seems to wind you down at the same time every day, it really can't hurt. How's your pre-bed routine? Do you do the same thing? My sleep hygiene, as we like yes, to call it, um, is, is probably not ideal. I do have my phone on till quite late at night and I know that that's a big no-no. But I do try and get in bed at the same time and, and do the same things every day and I, I try not to eat too late. So yes, I've got a bit of a routine. It's just my phone addiction that I've got to get through. <laughs> Blue light filter. Off the phone. <laughs> yeah. um, and you talk about trying to not eat eating too late. Is there an ideal time that you should try and wait before you have your dinner to go into sleep? I think it's slightly individualistic because we do know that some people are fine breaking down foods and metabolising later on at night. But there are some studies to show that nocturnal eating does have a negative impact on sleep. So it may be a matter of trying to, you know, make sure that you're not eating past 8pm if you're a 10pm sleeper. What, what's, are there sort of any techniques of trying to work out what, what does impact your sleep and what doesn't? You know, is it a case of just literally reviewing your night's sleep and seeing what you've eaten the night before? Is it is it that simple? Well, people keep sleep diaries, or at least we're supposed to be encouraging people to keep sleep diaries, to, to write down, you know, what they're doing, what they're eating each day, when they're going to bed, and then assessing the quality of their sleep using their fitness tracker or, or whatever else, you know, or even just how they feel. And then it would be quite nice to be able to get a little link going on to see what truly affects you. And is there an optimum time to do exercise amongst this? Um, Should you be exercising when you wake up first thing in the morning or later on at night? Does that play a role? Exercise definitely has a positive role on sleep, but we do know that if you exercise within three hours of going to sleep, it may negatively impact because, you know, you're your your endorphins are up, your, your your adrenaline's up, and that can sometimes make you feel a little less sleepy. Does it matter sort of what type of exercise you do? I'm just thinking in mm. terms of I have some back problems, so if I'm going to do yoga, I have to do it later in the day when I've sort of un, <laughs> unclenched a bit, bend, a bit bendier. Um, would that matter as much before sleep because it doesn't raise the heart rate as much, or would you... If you were going running, presumably you wouldn't want to do that right before bed. Yeah, so uh, yoga is very restorative, so... In, in those kind of cases where actually you could end with a shavasana and, and, and meditation, it's actually a, a, a positive. But it's more the heart pumping kind of exercises that I'm talking about. And I actually exercise first thing in the morning. And every so often when I do exercise later on in the day, I do actually feel like I perform a little bit better. Is there any sort of research around whether it takes a while for your body to wake up or is it just I haven't yet fully, fully risen um, so different people do uh, respond differently. It's it's an element of a what you're eating and ingesting throughout the day because it's potential that in the morning you haven't had you I know any had breakfast. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> you haven't had any breakfast. You've not got any kind of energy stores. You've been fasting for the last eight hours. You've, you're probably a little dehydrated. So all of those things are going to add to your exercise performance not being as good. But there are other people who you know can have an energy bar in the morning, down a glass of water, and then just be absolutely fine. And is there anything that's really sort of a good morning routine to have to wake you up? You know, should everyone just have that sort of glass of water first thing? Are, are there any sort of things you can recommend? I completely think that a glass of water first thing in the 
the morning is the best thing you can be doing because you've been dehydrated for a whole eight hours. Well, hopefully eight hours if you're getting your good sleep. And so, yeah, you're, you're fasting and dehydrated for that period of time. You need a glass of water and that is the first thing that you should be doing. And you're allowed caffeine then. It's long, it's far it's far enough from from bedtime that you're allowed you're allowed your cup of coffee then I'll let I'll let you off okay thank you thank you um, and something that I really notice is that when I don't get enough sleep that really does impact the way I sort of feel around food I crave sugar and carbs and all that stuff is that just because I've sort of got a low willpower because I'm tired or is there something actually sort of physically going on in my body? It's an element of both. Like really interestingly, when you are sleep deprived, we have a reduction in our uh, hormones called leptin and an increase in our hormone called ghrelin. And they both work to increase your appetite and to reduce your metabolism. And so if you haven't slept, that's why that's happening physiologically. In terms of kind of how you're feeling, it's because you just want to get the energy from wherever you can and you'll, you know, seek that chocolate bar or that cup of coffee. And it's a bit of a vicious cycle. But what I think is quite interesting is why our body is like that and why it's doing that. And that, that goes back to evolutionary times where we'd have winters with really long nights and very little food. And when that happens, you're sleeping for a long period of time. So your leptin goes up and your ghrelin goes down. So your appetite goes down and your metabolism goes up. So it means that you're managing to break down all of the calories stored from the summertime without feeling the appetite going up. And so you don't have to try and seek food. And the opposite happens in the summertime. So short nights, sleeping less, leptin goes down, ghrelin goes up appetite goes up so you eat as much as with a plentiful food that you have around you but you don't have a high metabolism so you end up storing all of those calories for the winter so if you sleep more then your body sort of goes more into winter mode yeah exactly that's really fascinating because you always think that you, you sort of lose your appetite in summer because it's hot and we always sort of stock up on all these kind of comfort foods in winter so really we should be doing the opposite or would that be strange for our bodies too <laughs> I think things have changed a little bit in terms of that because we actually all have blackout curtains now. We're probably Central sleeping <laughs> around the same amount of times for winter and for summer. But it's more a representative of what happens when we're sleep deprived. When, when you're tired. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Are there any sort of techniques that you use when you're when you're sort of in that slightly like, I just want I want chocolate, I want I want that energy boost to try and put off those cravings? Fibre is a really good one. Um so I always suggest things like nuts, which are high in protein and high in fibre. Both of those regulate your, your sugar content, so they regulate your blood sugar, but they also keep you fuller for longer. So that's what I always snack on um to try and keep me going through the day. Fibre actually is also really good in terms of sleep as well. Okay. Because we have a whole load of gut bacteria and we've come to realise that there is a a relationship between our, our gut and our brain. So it, it kind of fits in. We know that 50% of people with IBS, so irritable bowel syndrome, also have problems with sleep, depression, anxiety. So we know that there was a relationship, but we never quite figured that out. But now we've come to realise that these pathways that connect the two. And if we've got healthy gut bacteria, then we have improved sleep. Wow. So your stomach genuinely sort of communicates back to your brain. Exactly. It communicates through a specific nerve. It communicates through these neurotransmitters, so all these chemicals, and also through some of the toxins that our gut 
microbiome, so the good bacteria produce. And so if we can try and feed those good bacteria, which we can do using prebiotics, which are also dietary fibre, then hopefully we can then improve our, our sleep as well. Brilliant. So just break down a little. So what, where do you get prebiotics from? Can you take supplements for that? Or is that, again, should you be trying to just eat foods high in fibre? There, there are supplements available. So there's things like inulin, which have been investigated in terms of its relationship to sleep. And they have found that there is a positive correlation. But... There's also dietary fibre in terms of what you can eat. So as I said, whole grains. It's all the healthy, boring stuff, but the good stuff. So, yeah, you, you just need to be going for for your whole grain rice and, and breads and, and vegetables and, and all of those things that mama told you were good. <laughs> can you give us some examples of foods that are really high in melatonin? Yeah, absolutely. So cherries have been found to be really high in it. And we actually know that if you ingest eight ounces of tart cherry juice twice a day for tart two weeks. cherry juice? I know, it's, it's so specific, but it, it, it's I don't it's know what the tart research... cherry juice is. Well, you need to go to your local supermarket, evidently. <laughs> um, well, there, there are various different types of cherries, but they found that tart cherry juice was the one that would increase the amount of melatonin the most significantly when they checked the urinary amounts of melatonin okay. in you. And so they found that if you actually consume that, that your sleep does improve. Okay. There's also really good evidence for kiwis, which have a high amount of serotonin, which is the precursor for mer- melatonin. And it was suggested that if you have two kiwis an hour before bedtime for four weeks your sleep is markedly improved so why the four weeks so well what... the studies were for four weeks okay. and so we can only draw the conclusions based on those study times but there'd be no harm in taking it for longer if it works for you two kiwis and how, how much of the, of the tart ounce, cherries eight, eight ounces of some tart cherries <laughs> twice a day <laughs> twice a day <laughs> you're, you've got shares in tart cherries don't you? <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> okay so to summarize Think about how much caffeine and alcohol you're taking and try and reduce that. When it comes to the good stuff, things like kiwis, <laughs> cherry juice, anything that can increase the melatonin. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So increase melatonin, increase serotonin. But also think about those lovely little gut bacteria and your microbiome and how to feed those bacteria. So thinking fibre, thinking probiotics, all of those lovelies. And when it comes to cheese, that doesn't actually lead you to dream too much. Eat the cheese. I, I, you, can, you can have your little bit of cheese. But think <laughs> about saturated fats. <laughs> so mum was basically right that you should have your whole grains and that your gut is telling you stuff, but not so much about the nightmares. Yeah, so mums are generally pretty right. I'll, I'll let them have this one, even if it is about a, a little porky about uh, about nightmares. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Well, we're coming towards the end of the show, but I just wanted to leave the listeners with some more quick fire tips. So first of all, you know, all of us have such different schedules and likes and dislikes and particular dietary requirements. Is there almost just one golden principle that sort of listeners can take home with them that would help improve their nutrition and sleep balance? I think it's a matter of making sure your your diet contains mainly whole foods. So things that you're trying to prepare yourself at home, whole grains, so that that way you're not ingesting a whole load of e-numbers, you're not taking on those high fats and and sugary sugary foods that are going to only negatively impact your sleep. I mean, that's that all sounds like the most delicious wonderful food. I think people do slip sometimes, so I think it's just to 
not let one little thing that you do kind of spiral. So if you are drinking a little bit, don't just go, well, I've had one drink, so I'll have more than that and I'll, or I'll just write off the whole week. It's just you can get back on track the next day and forgive yourself and, and get back on the wagon. And have you got any sort of worst habits when it comes to sleeping? Well, for myself, honestly, it is my phone. I, I I'm, I'm glued to it. I have. Is it social media that you, that keeps you? Yeah, put? I just, I, I just love scrolling through my Instagram, and it's, it's disgusting. I'm a disgusting addict. <laughs> but um, that is what I need to stop. I'm gonna put one of those little blocks on where you can, yes. you, can you can put a block to how long you're gonna use it. The for. thing is, though, I have that, and you can override it very, very easily by just <laughs> clicking a button. So you just like, what's this silly block thing doing? Just get rid of that. Oh, I get the screen use reports yeah. where it tells you that it's gone up this week and you just think, oh, God, I'm so terrible. Why do I do this to myself? We, we are bad people. We are. <laughs> well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on and talking about nutrition and sleep and reaching that right balance. Um, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sleep Life. Make sure you subscribe and we'd also love it if you could rate or review this episode Now, we talk a lot in this podcast about things you can do to change your day-to-day behaviour or sleep environment, all of which are really important. But one of the easiest things you can do is just making sure you're sleeping in a bedroom that's really set up to help you sleep better. And that's what Simba is all about. You can check out Simba's award-winning hybrid mattress at simbasleep.com, where you'll also be able to find the rest of Simba's range designed to solve common sleep problems. We'll also drop any offers in the show notes, so keep an eye out for that. We'll be back in two weeks' time, but watch out for a special bonus episode dropping next week, a sleep story written by Claire Storrow designed specifically to help you doze off. Until then, sweet dreams. 